It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Griff Jenkins, my colleague, he's been covering the border for more than 10 years. This, I believe, might be his 20th trip to the border. Griff, welcome to today's show. Thank you, Bill. And, you know, it could be the 21st or the 19th. I have lost count, but I'll tell you, it is certainly a story that I set out to do Mm -hmm. uh, and spend about three days covering it. And now it's my 12th day because, um, as I told our friend Hannity last night, I just think this is a time that is really moving into uncharted territory in terms of what we're seeing on the border. And it's a time also when we're really not getting any access. I told Hannity the story couldn't be bigger and the access couldn't be less. And so until I drop dead, exhausted, I'm going to keep covering it because there's so many facets of it. And if the Border Patrol and officials at DHS will not give the media access, then like a dog on a bone, I'm not going to give up. Well, I I heard that. Um, The story could not be bigger and the access could not be less. By the way, for our listening audience, we are recording this at noon Eastern time on Thursday, the 18th of March. The reason I point that out is depending, depending on when listeners are able to hear your reporting here, Griff. The story may change yet again, but the idea for this conversation is to give you the chance to tell stories that you cannot tell on television. So after all these years and all these trips there, why is this happening and what are you seeing? This is happening because in the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, for which I've been, and remember our viewers uh, may, may have seen two years ago, I traveled all the way to San Pedro Sula, Honduras, and, and traveled with that caravan all the way through Honduras, all the way through Guatemala, and all the way through southern Mexico to the northern. How Mexico. long? How long is that journey, Griff? That journey is about two weeks long. Um, uh, there's a, a misconception that they walk the whole way. They don't. They largely try and hitch rides, and it's not a phenomenon. The migratory route through those countries, through Mexico, has been happening for many, many years because conditions there from poverty, lack of opportunities, lack of employment, uh, uh, difficult governments, uh, gangs, violence are a real thing. And many of them want to get out. And as they see different opportunities in the U.S., there are pull factors, as you've heard, and there are push factors. The push factors is the violence, is the poverty. The pull factors is the the, the notion, the belief that if they did endure this hard, difficult 14-day journey where they will be subjected possibly to coyotes and traffickers and other hardships, very difficult living conditions, that they would actually get in. That's the pull factor. They're going to get in. Now, we are at a point when, for either political or other reasons, a new administration has literally lifted any deterrent that would make them think they wouldn't get in. So when they see All of the MPP, the 25,000 or so uh, asylum seekers that were forced to remain in Mexico when the then Trump administration put that policy in effect in January of 2019, they are now seeing all those people that have waited upwards of two years being let in. That tells them it's time to go. 
I'm going to get in too, even if the administration is saying don't come. And the migrants I've talked to in both Matamoros and Juarez in the past week, 10 days, they are telling me, yeah, we, we're, we, we believe we're going to get in. On top of that, you, you have an opportunity. Cartels see this immense financial opportunity to blur the message and really down in those countries where they have less access to, to information and news as we might have in this country. The cartels are sending this message, go, go, go. You should go. You're going to get in. And then you have even harder pull factors, which is if relatives got in, made it to somewhere in America and they send a message back on a text message or a Facebook message and say, I made it, it's time for you to come too. You have the numbers we have right now. Now, let me further go a little deeper and tell you why the numbers of illegal crossings between the ports of entry, not those that are trying to come to the port of entry and legally apply for asylum to present themselves, make a claim of fear and, and ask for asylum. You have the illegal crossings increasing because the border patrol is overwhelmed. The numbers are overwhelming them. And on top of that, remember the border patrol gets people as they come across the border, but they also have to transport them to where they're being processed or detained. And then they have to also maintain those facilities. And so when you have, let's say, for example, a odd number of 100 agents to patrol a thousand miles of the border. Well, when you have overwhelming numbers and now you have to transport them and you have to build up new facilities to hold them and separate families in one place, children in another place, single adults in another, then you've now got 33% of your force, say, transporting, 33% manning those facilities, and then you've only got 33% sitting on what they call the line, the border. Now, where we are now with 565 unaccompanied children coming across our border every day, up from 313 in February, you have a overwhelming number of the manpower dealing with the interior facility holding and transporting of them and very few people on the line. So even with the best technology, with cameras, with sensors, with drones, if there's no one to actually meet them at that border, you're going to lose that game. Yeah, that's um, an excellent way to describe it, actually. It almost serves as, as a metaphor for the holes in the system. For sure. And... You, you additionally have an administration that wants to strike a different tone than the last one. That's why you hear, you know, the president saying he wants to issue in a more humane uh-huh. immigration system. And so uh, there is a perception that even with a unmanned force, they're going to be less willing to actually enforce the laws. And that has created a condition now where those that seek to overwhelm our system, and that is specifically these coyotes and cartels and traffickers, they're, they're winning the game right now. And unless there's what agents in the Border Patrol and in, in the CBP tell me is unless we begin to find some sort of way to bring in a policy to take a different footing on this, there's, according to one chief that told me last night, quote, no end in sight. Well. Uh, let me come back to that. You, you mentioned something a moment ago, MPP. I'm assuming that, what does that acronym stand for? Is that is that those who are on the border that were um, told to remain in Mexico for the past two years? Correct. So the Trump administration came up with a policy called Migrant Protection Protocols. And that was when you come and 
claim asylum on our borders rather than being allowed to wait in the U.S., perhaps with a relative or, or a guardian, you then had to remain in Mexico. You had to stay on the Mexico side. And that was a deterrent for uh, many migrants because they didn't want to wait mm -hmm. on the Mexican side. The migrant camps we saw just exploded, particularly in Tijuana and Matamoros and Juarez, where I was uh, earlier this week. And the uh, now undoing that policy has caused not only more to come, but it's created, because we have to remember, we're in a pandemic, it has created a new COVID threat. And so, as we have reported on mm -hmm. in the, the city of Brownsville, Texas, in a heavily trafficked area of the Rio Grande Valley, you have migrants coming across that are not tested by the Border Patrol, released to the local uh, uh, city governments or NGOs who do test them. But once they test positive, they those local governments don't have the authority to force them to quarantine, to stay somewhere. And so then that then creates a new COVID concern well, on top of Yeah, it's another whole, whole different aspect of the story, too. And just for geography's sake, if you were to look at the border, left or right, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. Today you're coming to us from Texas in the city of El Paso. I understand over the next day or two you're going to move to Tijuana which is across from San Diego and California. Can, can you tell or can you describe a difference in the border between these different areas in these different states? Is, is one spot easier to access than others, or is it all pretty rough stuff? <laughs> That's a great question. It's all rough stuff. And there's, I think, 1,980 miles of total border when you go from California to Texas. And in the case of Texas, where we were showing, particularly in that Rio Grande Valley, that sector is the heaviest trafficked uh, of the number of people coming across uh, traditionally and always has been. And that's why we have been calling it, many of us in the media, the ground zero for Biden's border surge. But the RGV sector is actually 310 total miles of pure river border. It's the Rio Grande River, as whereas out in California, in New Mexico, in Arizona, most of that, much of that is uh, desert land. And of course, you see the wall that President Trump was trying to build there. He was going out there frequently. I interviewed President Trump in California at a new section of the wall he built there. But the term, uh, in terms of what's coming across, you are seeing a larger number of uh, uh, humans coming across, migrants that want to surrender and apply for asylum in Texas. Whereas out in Arizona, you're dealing a lot more with individuals that don't want to be caught, individuals that are trying to move narcotics, and uh, the challenges are, are different. That's why uh, I've gotten to know many of these Border Patrol chiefs um, over the years, and they move from one sector to the other. They, they, they get a full, uh, I guess, experience of trying to meet the challenges and difficult tasks of securing different areas. But there's one, when back when I was a reporter uh, specifically for Greta Van Susteren's show, in 2010, when there was then a law, uh, SB 1070, that deputized local enforcement to assist with making arrests for illegal crossings to help the Border Patrol 
there is a uh, Indian reservation there, the Tohono O'odham Reservation in Arizona that meets the U.S. border. And so it creates all sorts of challenges. It's in a rough terrain. So there's a heavy, heavy narcotics route there. So the challenges of the border is very complex. And uh, what we're mostly seeing right now is what's happening in Texas with the number of migrants coming across in these groups, more than 100 or so. Uh, and uh, out West, we may not be hearing about it, but rest assured, it's just as much of a full blitz and a challenge right now out there with narcotics and other things. In fact, I've been trying to get out to Arizona in the Yuma sector, in the Tucson sector, to try and see what they're doing there to show our viewers. Because really, once you look at the full picture of the challenges of securing our border and the threats coming across, it's really a task that we we all should be united and take take politics entirely out of supporting our men and women trying to to, to achieve yeah. that goal. If you don't reverse the Trump policies, then if you go down these migratory patterns and paths through Mexico, into Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, the, you do not give new people or more people the incentive to make the trip. It just, I mean, based on what I'm listening to, that that logic seems pretty obvious. So that's a very interesting question because I was in a very difficult Juarez migrant camp in the past few days. And we went in with security. And as we went in, the security guy said, how long do you plan to be here? I don't want to be here very long because the locals tell me the police won't even go into this neighborhood in Juarez because it's so dangerous. In the migrant camp, which is one of the first migrant camps that's existed there traditionally, run by a Catholic priest, uh, was dirty. It was filthy. Um, they've had COVID cases. And I talked to a 14-year-old boy from El Salvador. And I asked him about, you know, not coming. And, and he got the message to not come, but he was still there. He had lived there for about eight months so he was sort of already there well before the new administration had come in and well, sent the months. message to not come. Eight months. And uh, he was not by himself, by the way. He had his sister and I believe his mother. And I asked him about, you know, not coming. And he told me that he didn't care that he wasn't in there. He didn't care he was there for eight months because the conditions in that dangerous neighborhood, in that filthy migrant camp, were better than what he had in El Salvador. And at 14, he would likely be forced to be in a gang. And it gives you sort of the human uh, yeah. uh, snapshot of why whatever administration it is needs to do more to help the conditions in that northern triangle, which might incentivize them to not leave. But even with the best intentions and with agreements that the new administration may be able to do to help incentivize uh, uh, people to not come because you help create better uh, living conditions in those countries with, with partnerships between our country and those countries, it's still not going to be solved unless there is some sort of, of, policy put in place that would deter them. And quite frankly, policies that will help enforce um, uh, the, the, the message that if you come and we tell you not to come, then you will be sent back. 
in the fact that you have the moratorium on deportations, there are very few expulsions now and people are caught and released. Border Patrol officials tell you that this catch and release is the one thing that's got to be addressed. Whether or not you bring back something like Remain in Mexico, the fact that you have catch and release, it's not going to change. Which which means if if you're caught there, you're, you're released into the country, meaning the United States. Correct. Mostly the single adults, particularly if for some reason we're able to uh, see that you have a criminal record, you're detained even with exploding conditions. Uh But when you have these these shelters or or detention centers that are, you know, five, six hundred percent overwhelmed, if you have a family member and and you can release them at a bus station, they're doing it overwhelmingly. And and let me just add this because your question is a very, very, very important big picture one. What do we do? Uh, I think. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, I've known for many years. I interviewed him during the uh, Obama-Biden administration when he was the director of the USCIS, the citizenship group. And then, of course, he would later become the number two uh, at DHS. But he, he knows this. All this stuff we're talking about, he knows 10 times better. And so I think more so than even President Biden, uh, Secretary Mayorkas has a real challenge, full well knowing all of these things, to, to, to lay out a path that is going to both achieve the goal of slowing the flow and, and the overwhelming of our border uh, officials, as well as trying to strike a different tone uh, for supporting the problems that cause those migrants to come from those mm-hmm. countries. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, but that's a it's a comprehensive answer. And what I hear you saying is that simply saying no is not enough. Ultimately, it's not. It's got to have consequences. And that's not me speaking. That's what the officials tell me. And unless the consequences are uh, you're someone not being allowed to actually stay then there's really relatively little that's going to deter someone from taking a shot at. I'll give you a quick example. We played, I believe, uh, when I was doing reports with with you and Dana, uh, hearing from a a migrant named Nelson from Honduras, who I'd asked him with my Spanish translator, did he hear the message not to come? He said, no, I didn't. You know, and and I I believed uh, listening to my news in my country that I would be able to get in. Now, Nelson, what we can't show you on TV because of the amount of time we have, Nelson actually had crossed illegally between the ports of entry in way southeast Texas in the Rio Grande Valley near McAllen, right in that area we've been showing people. He was detained there right at the point of crossing, bussed to a CBP flight paid for by taxpayers, flown out to El Paso, and El Paso sent him back across the border because it was a quick turn around and sent back. Now he told us off camera, he's going to try and figure out if he can apply for asylum. And if they deny him, because right now the the new administration is saying we're not accepting new applications, he'll try and cross illegally again. So there's literally a circular process happening right on that border. And and that's, that's creating a, a conveyor belt uh, of, of, of people wow. flowing across our borders and not helping solve the situation. Yeah, very interesting. Great, great explanation there. I, you look, I've been watching you for two weeks down there, night and day. It looks like you need some tea to rest your voice, but uh, do that as we get a quick timeout here. This is Hemmer Time with Griff Jenkins. 
Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Back here with Hammer Time, Griff Jenkins, our colleague from Fox News, been on the border now. I want to say two weeks on this trip, but it is about uh, trip number 20, going back tw- 10 years plus, Griff. Uh, just four more questions. Uh, I, uh, listen, I, I could ask you 100 more questions, but uh, your time's well, about... Well, I'll take them all. <laughs> I, I appreciate <laughs> you saying that. Why do you believe the administration has not given you the access to see Border Patrol or see the facilities um, when compared to the Trump administration? How would you address that? I wish I had an answer. And a lot of the officials that I try and get interviews with are these chiefs, Border Patrol chiefs that I've known. And when they first were being denied uh, the ability to grant me a ride along and show me that sector and show me the latest conditions, they actually pushed back as well with Washington and then said, wow, we, we're really being shut down. But don't take it from me, a big story on the NBC Nightly News uh, talking about their lack of access. And many of the stories you're seeing, both on Fox and other stations, you'll see us working with Border Patrol Union or uh, constables in Texas, which are local law enforcement agreements that they partner with Border Patrol to help solve the manpower challenge to get support. And why they won't give some access and transparency is beyond me, because while we certainly understand that there is a very sensitive need to protect the the security and identity of unaccompanied minors, particularly tender age children under 13, that is different than simply being allowed to stand with a Border Patrol chief right on the border to see firsthand and show Americans what's happening and hear from them exactly what the problems are and what the answers and solutions are. Why they're denying that uh, simple access is something I've never seen in the years I've covered the border. And honestly, in the 26 years I've lived in Washington, I've really never seen such a lack of transparency. And as we all have seen, the clips of the administration coming in, uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki talking about the need. We're going to be very transparent. Every administration says, and you know this, Bill, every administration says we're going to be the most transparent one in history. And then, of course, they walk things back. This is a whole new kind of uh, uh, denying access. And I think, ultimately, it's got to give. I I watched the White House briefing on Wednesday of this week. I noticed a shift in tone among the reporters who were in that room. Uh, that I, I really haven't heard in the last two months. Um, they, they were much more aggressive in their questioning about the border and the crisis that you're describing to us here, Griff. And many of them kept coming back to this issue of denial of access. So we're going to keep an eye on that. Have you seen a detention center? Have you seen how it works, how it operates, who's inside? I have not been allowed inside one. I was able uh, a week or so ago to leak some photos that no one had seen of a temporary outdoor processing center uh, uh, in McAllen, Texas, which is at ground zero. But all of the facilities in uh, uh, McAllen, Texas, and RGV, I have been in in previous administrations. And I interviewed way back the actual gentleman who was the Border Patrol engineer guy in charge 
of the, quote, original cages under the unaccompanied minor crisis of 2014 under the Obama administration. And the reason why it was chain-linked fences, he told me, was that they were concerned of having children in, facil- in, in confinement without the ability to monitor them and physically see them because they were worried about other older migrants perhaps sexually assaulting them or harming them or you know, violence of any kind. So the idea was to obviously see them. Then, of course, we got into the semantics of the Trump era and the, quote, cages. And I got a tour in McAllen of a facility called Ursula that's now actually under construction, which was ground zero for the kids in cages issue. Now they have these new uh, uh, containers and they've rethought it. They've redone it. It's better. It's more humane. And that's what we hear only from a few members of Congress who have gotten access. And House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, when I interviewed him uh, earlier this week, said that the kids are in great shape. They're being cared for. But I'm not going to trust that because, like any other journalist on the story, we need to see it. And the American people, more importantly, need to see it to make the decision for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I haven't seen a single detention center, whether it was for single adults or for children, or for families. I have been into the shelters in the processing centers on the Mexican side of the border, but I can't see it on the U.S. side, and that's just not acceptable. Yeah. I know you'll stay on that um, as we move through this story. That really has no end in sight, as you mentioned a few moments ago. Uh, I've seen some images, some video of the Trump border wall, um, uh, and I, I've it's, it's kind of stark, uh, Griff, when you see... Uh, edges of a wall just stop in the middle of the wilderness. Have you seen that? And what does that look like to you? I've seen it up close and personal and pretty much at every section of the border as we were talking from California to Texas. And if you step back and, and just sort of think how the Border Patrol officials and chiefs think of life, they will tell you, you need three things every day to better secure our border. One is technology, and they've got a lot of it, drones, cameras, sensors. One is manpower, and they're constantly struggling to get enough of it. And the other is infrastructure, because infrastructure is the simplest, easiest way to deter and create a way to specifically uh, you know, lock off one area so they can only focus on this other area. And so the Trump wall, which got politicized, obviously, really was something that the Border Patrol officials particularly liked, because if they can put up a a wall and a deterrent in one area, then they know that their challenges will come in a different area and they can use their limited manpower and resources in that specific area. So it gives them uh, an additional help. However, once politics got in, in, in it, well, no one wanted it. If you look back in the 90s, back when Democrats were also supporting the wall, then I think uh, I think it's, it's, it's quite a telling point that you were for it before you were against it for political reasons. But one thing's for sure, Border Patrol officials will tell you that the wall, certainly in a specific targeted area, uh, uh, serves a very strong deterrent purpose. Yeah, what you're describing is that it takes off the pressure in certain areas, and I think it goes back to the metaphor that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about plugging the holes, and there are a lot of holes in this system. And just listening to you explain this, I, it is so massively complex. And I, 
I guess to, to give our viewers and our listeners a sense of this, the governor of Texas said this week, it's only going to get worse. So before I ask you, how does it all end? Is, is the conclusion, when you describe Secretary Mayorkas, knowing full well what the challenges have been, right? I mean, that, that's what you said, correct? That he's been yes. on this issue for 10 years. Is yep. the conclusion then that the administration welcomed this? And if the answer is yes, then why? How would you answer that? Well, I would leave it to them to answer it. But I can tell you what I sort of suspect is that I don't say they welcomed it, but it's hard to imagine they didn't at least foresee it, that it wasn't predictable, having given Mayorkas's past experience. And the, the one indicator, the telltale sign that this is getting worse is the number of encounters in the month of February, 100,441. In the year 2019, when in the month of February, they had 66,883 apprehensions for the whole month Mm -hmm. of February. That was, you wouldn't hit 100,000 apprehensions in 2019 until the month of May. The migration routes, the, the heavy flow traditionally year after year, doesn't hit until April, May, and June. They didn't hit in 2019, 100,000 now until May. So you're essentially four months ahead of the heavy flow in February of 2021. And so it is uh, correct to suspect that we will have now the rest of March, April, May in the 100,000 plus numbers. And that's why they're saying this could be an unprecedented number of encounters at the border that we're staring at right now when you compare it to 2014 and 2019. On top of that, the specific unaccompanied children, which is the greatest grave tragedy of of what they're going through at the hands of human traffickers, is higher than it's ever been. The 565 a day I mentioned, the three up from 313 in February. But if you look at 2019, the, the total number of unaccompanied children they had come across the border, 76,020, that averages to 208 a day, roughly. So we're, we're just headed in such a dangerous and, and uh, overwhelming uh, uh, forecast, if you will, for uh, what's to come. Yeah. I guess we'll leave it there then, Griff, and we'll be unable to answer Governor Abbott's question about if he says it only gets worse and that's the way you describe it. We do not know then how it ends. Griff, rest your voice. Uh, do you have an answer on that? Well, I just want to say one last thing, and thank you for having me on Hammer sure. Time. It was uh, great to be able to discuss this and try and give a little more context because it's such a complex issue, as you as you mentioned. But in terms of how does this end, I want to come back on Hammer Time when it does end and look back and say, wow, we didn't see that they could actually take the politics out of it. Wow, we didn't see that there was a policy or a uh, 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 a way of handling it, if you will, uh, to 
strike a, a, a successful deterrent as opposed to reverting to the Trump era or going with the new Biden uh, policy, which is essentially to just take away all of the Trump era policies. I, I don't know how it ends, mm. but we will talk about it because it's going to take a lot of bipartisanship, creativity and commitment uh, by everybody if we're going to get it dead. Yeah, well stated. Griff, you take care, and as I said, rest your voice. Good to speak, <laughs> Good to speak with Thanks, you. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Griff Jenkins, our colleague on the border here at the Fox News Channel. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.